0: I'm Lee Roland from the ACLU. This is At Liberty, the podcast where we discuss today's most important civil rights and civil liberties issues. Today we're going to talk about how prosecutors fuel mass incarceration. The United States sends more people to prison and jail than any other nation in the world. We currently hold a full 25% of the world's prisoners in custody, despite making up just 5% of the global population. When Trump became president, he brought with him a promise to be tough on crime. His attorney general, Jeff Sessions, is fully on board and has vowed to reinvigorate the war on drugs. But in that same 2016 election, Americans also voted in scores of local candidates that ran on platforms vowing to reduce our prison population, including reform-minded district attorney candidates. Criminal justice reform advocates have taken note, and many are now focused on district attorney races in upcoming elections as the linchpin in the fight against mass incarceration. With us today to discuss prosecutors and their role in the criminal justice system is Udi Ofer. Udi is the Deputy National Political Director of the ACLU, and he's director of the ACLU's Campaign for Smart Justice, which is dedicated to ending mass incarceration in the U.S. Udi, welcome.
1: Good to be on. Thank you.
0: So let's start big picture. Why are we in this place of mass incarceration, and how do we get here?
1: Mass incarceration is a term used for a problem that really affects every part of American life. In its most literal sense, it just means the 2.3 million people who are on any given day locked up in cages in the United States. As you noted, that is way disproportionate to how other Western industrialized countries treat their own citizens. And not all communities are treated alike. Mass incarceration is a problem that is mostly targeted at Black communities in the United States. How we got here? Well, there's the technical answer, and then there's what I think the real answer.
0: I'd love to hear them both.
1: Right. So the technical answer is a whole host of policies and laws that were passed over the span of probably beginning in the early 1970s, And dating to the late 1990s.
0: And are these at the state or federal level or both? Everywhere. Okay.
1: Everywhere. People always talk about the criminal justice system. Well, the truth is we don't have one criminal justice system in the U.S. We have thousands of criminal justice systems. And criminal justice is one of the most local issues in America today. It's mostly run by local actors with their own local political incentives. And it's actually one of the reasons it's so hard to dismantle this carceral system is because we're not going to end mass incarceration through an act of Congress or through a United States Supreme Court decision. We literally have to go state by state and oftentimes county by county and dismantle the policy. So what were those policies? Things like mandatory minimums where suddenly... Beginning in the late 1970s, laws were passed that said, we don't care what judges think. Uh, We're going to tell judges these are the mandatory sentences that have to be applied. There were policies like what are known as three-strike laws and habitual offender laws that said, if you're someone who was already in prison, and then for whatever reason, a lot of time it's because they weren't provided any support services once they left— were convicted of committing another offense, then you would face extreme sentences like 20, 30 years, even life without parole. There were policies um, like dismantling parole systems. When someone, once they were in prison, it was almost impossible to get out, even if you were on your best behavior, got your college degree while in prison. Basically, there were a lot more laws that were passed that criminalized activities and sentences became longer and it was harder to get out uh, once you were in prison. And then once you were out of prison, there are nearly 50,000 legal restrictions on what um, someone who's returning back home can do. So everything from being deprived of the right to vote to being deprived of the right to work, basically. So that's the very kind of legal policy oriented. The real answer, uh, racism and politics. Okay. Okay. When you study the history of how these laws began to pass, it is impossible not to connect it to the legacy of slavery, to the aftermath of the dismantling of the Jim Crow state, to the rise and then the backlash against the civil rights movement. It was really kind of Barry Goldwater, Republican candidate for president who ran against Lyndon Johnson, who first began to adopt language that actually sounds almost exactly the same as Donald Trump today. We need to, you know, crack down on criminals who are just ruining our American society and really using it in a racialized way where the images that would be displayed in the commercials for Barry Goldwater were basically of black people or, at that time, of anti-war protesters and civil rights advocates. He was a Republican candidate, but I actually have to say, you know, the growth of mass incarceration was historically a bipartisan issue. And I would actually even argue that one of the worst presidents in American history when it comes to the problem of mass incarceration is actually Bill Clinton. Some of the most egregious laws that increased sentences, tied the hands of judges, used really harmful rhetoric, was Bill Clinton during the 1990s as part of his, you know, kind of new wave of democratic politics. But a key point of this is if these policies were implemented against white Americans during the 1970s, 1980s, and really mass incarceration policies reached their height in the late 1990s, I don't think it would have been accepted. Um, Politicians scored political points with a tough-on-crime narrative to dehumanize people. And that is how we ended up in this crisis today.
0: You've mentioned that there's a lot of kind of mini justice systems, right? And millions of people caught up in these. Can you give us a quick snapshot of where people are? Are folks caught up in county jails, uh, state prisons? Are they in the federal system?
1: So on any given day, if you just did like a snapshot of a typical day, there are 2.3 million people who are incarcerated. Of those, 90% are under state and local jurisdiction. So on the federal level, there are about 225,000 people locked up. About 174,000 are in federal prisons. The majority, in fact, even the vast majority of people under federal jurisdiction are in for drug offenses and property offenses. Those are the vast majority.
0: Mm-hmm. When you say property offenses, you mean things like stealing, right? Yeah. So okay.
1: theft, burglary, so breaking into someone's home, mm-hmm. fraud, those okay. are the most common ones. Okay. Um, State prisons and local jails look very differently. There are about 1.3 million people in state prison at any given day. The majority of people who are there are actually in for offenses involving violence. So things like assault, things like robbery, uh, manslaughter. So that's the majority of people, about 55% in state prison. Then you have local jails. And we're going to talk a lot about that since district attorneys have a lot of power over local jails in particular. Okay. And local jails hold about 600,000 people on any given day. So these are run by the county government, city government, uh, depends on your jurisdiction. Of the 600,000 in local jail, about 460,000 haven't even been convicted of a crime. So in other words, about one in five people who are incarcerated in America today haven't even been convicted of a crime.
0: And that's something that people refer to often as pre-trial detention. That's right. That right. It's
1: pretrial okay. detention. And a lot of times the reason that they're locked up, um, even though they haven't been convicted, is because they can't afford cash bail.
0: And what's cash bail?
1: Cash bail um, is the system where if you're arrested, you get sent to uh, central booking, you get fingerprinted, photographed. And then you go before a judge in what's known as an arraignment or initial hearing. And in that arraignment, a a prosecutor will argue, and this is how much power they have, Mm -hmm. on what should be your conditions of release while you're um, waiting for trial. So they could say, hey, you could just go home. You know, go back to your your kids. Mm -hmm. Go back to your job. Go home. Here's a date that you need to show up to court. Right. Or they could say, um, you can go home only if you give us $100,000 or $50,000 or $2,000. And that's what's known as cash bail. The purpose of cash bail historically was to make sure that someone shows up in court after he, they have been arrested. And they
0: get that money back? Is that and the idea? they get that money okay.
1: back if they show up in court. And historically, you know, that it's... That made sense, right? There needed to be some sort of incentive for a person to come back. Right. But what it's become is a form yeah. of what we call wealth-based incarceration, where people are being locked up because they're too poor to afford cash bail. Someone cannot afford that bail. They have to go to a loan shark, essentially, or, mm-hmm. or you know a bail bond agent, where they take out a loan that has egregious rates uh, that are considered predatory. So let's say you, you were hit with a $50,000 bail. Right. For you to be able to borrow that money, you usually have to pay a 10% fee. That's $5,000, Five grand. Right. which is a lot of money for most Americans, and you will never see that money again. We have cases of people in jail for more than three years, even though they're presumed innocent under the law, but they haven't been convicted of a crime, and they're just waiting for their trial. But our system is so clogged that sometimes you wait for your trial for years. Okay. I know those were a lot of numbers I just threw at you.
0: We can handle it. (laughs) All right, so that's a really helpful snapshot. You've already hinted at where we're headed here, which is the power of prosecutors. Tell us a little bit about what they do and, and how their power has increased incarceration rates.
1: Prosecutors are the most powerful actor in the criminal justice system. And they usually go up against the least powerful actor in the criminal justice system. And that is someone who's a defendant. Um, And the power imbalance is so crazy. So let me play this out. So let's say someone gets arrested, right? That is done by the police. The police then has to file a report and they send that over to a prosecutor's office. One of the first key decisions that a prosecutor gets to make is, what do you do with this arrest? Is there really enough evidence here to actually prosecute? Or should this arrest be what's known as declined or basically not charged? That is a key decision point right there, where we found in our analysis a lot of racial disparities, meaning that black people are treated differently than white people, right there in that decision point. The second decision point they get to make is a, something we already discussed, and that is bail. Mm-hmm. Prosecutors know that if someone cannot afford their bail amount, that means they're going to be in jail waiting their trial. And guess what? When you're in jail, separated from your family, from your loved ones, from your job, you become desperate. When you're desperate, you're gonna agree and plead guilty to a lot of things. But right there, they get to decide how much bail to ask, if any bail at all, of the judge. Right. And then the third way the prosecutors have tremendous power is what's known as a plea bargain. So one of the things I bet you a lot of the listeners of this podcast, you know, when you think of the criminal justice system, they think of law and order. <coughs> Right. Totally. Right. And you, you know, you get your day in court, but there's a jury of your peers. You have this amazing criminal defense attorney who's like advocating for you, prosecutor and jury after deliberation comes up with a verdict. That is not what happens. Right. Not even close. Ninety five percent of guilty verdicts come from a plea bargain. That is the most important statistic that you need to remember from this show. What does that mean? It means a prosecutor makes an offer to a defendant and then a defendant accepts the offer and then ends up either going home or more likely spending time in prison in jail. So, This is where prosecutors have the most discretion in the sense of they get to decide what plea deal to offer. Am I going to offer aggravated assault or regular assault? Am I going to offer a felony or a misdemeanor, which has extreme consequences? Am I going to use what's known as a sentencing enhancement, meaning that I want to pile on additional stuff to make the potential sentence even more egregious? And we have example after example of prosecutors saying, Hey, I will offer you a plea deal of 10 years if you plead guilty to this. If you don't accept this deal, I'm going to go for 20 years or 30 years. And we have example after example of A, people accepting that because they're scared, Mm -hmm. but also examples of people not accepting it, then losing the case and then being sentenced to things like life without parole.
0: Are these choices happening, you know, at the individual prosecutor level? You know, are they attorneys? Who sets policy? And are these folks elected?
1: Yeah. So there are 2,344 prosecutor offices in the United States. Um, When we usually say... Prosecutor, we really mean the head person of an office where there are a lot of assistant prosecutors or assistant district attorneys. Okay. So in all but three states, Alaska, Connecticut, and New Jersey, and Washington, D.C., prosecutors are elected, meaning that they're politicians.
0: Right, and they're on the ballot.
1: And they're on the ballot. Now, the majority of Americans don't know that they're elected. Right. In fact, the ACLU conducted a poll earlier this year where we found that about 50% of Americans knew that prosecutors were elected, but millennials in particular, the numbers were even higher in terms of not knowing the prosecutors are elected. Okay. And in fact, our poll also found that even when people knew the prosecutors were elected, they would usually skip that vote because they have no idea who these people are. In fact, 80% of prosecutors run unopposed. Wow. You know, most prosecutorial races are sleeper races where the party loyalists are the only ones who vote. They run unopposed and they win with very few votes and no one pays attention. Now, when they do run for office and they do make their stump speech, historically, it's almost always been a tough on crime stump speech. Where the only statistic that they wave in front of the voters is is how many guilty verdicts they got. Now, they don't tell voters that almost all of them are through plea bargains and that's what they run on. You know, I'm the tough on crime candidate. I'm going to crack down against criminals, against violent criminals, um, against illegals, which is language like you hear the president of the United States using. So that's, that's the typical state and they have tremendous power. Prosecutors can largely end mass incarceration tomorrow if they wanted to without a single change of the law. What could they do? They could just stop charging people the most egregious offenses possible. They could focus on actually what we call restorative justice and try to help the person instead of harm the person in the community. They can use diversion. So, for example, we know that the majority of people in prison have uh, uh, mental illness problems or drug addiction problems, yet right now our criminal justice system doesn't treat it at all, but rather just punishes people even more severely and creates greater problems. So prosecutors hold the key to that. And I will say there are prosecutors now that have been elected who are starting to change the system. So,
0: yeah, I want to ask about that. So I happen to live in Brooklyn. And pretty notoriously, a few years ago, a DA in Brooklyn said he was not going to prosecute low-level drug crimes. That is pretty astounding, right? I I mean, an elected DA said to his community, here's a chunk of crimes I politically disagree with, and my office is not going to prosecute them. Um, Is that level of discretion normal? And is that a good thing?
1: It's an example of the type of extraordinary discretion the prosecutors have. And I got to say, there are even more amazing examples. So one of the, recent, one of the new district attorneys I want to talk about is a guy by the name of Larry Krasner.
0: I suspected right? he would yeah. come up today. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, so Philadelphia, which is a city that last year elected Larry Krasner as district attorney, has notoriously been a city that elected the most, quote unquote, tough on crime DAs in 2010. The New York Times called the Philadelphia district attorney America's deadliest DA because the district attorney was someone who sought the death penalty the most times than any other district attorney. And by the way, that again shows you like the power of district attorneys. They
0: get but, to make the call about whether or not to charge someone with a capital
1: offense. Yeah, yeah. which is literally a life and death situation. So that was as recently as 2010. Then the current DA in Philadelphia, or the the DA that preceded Larry Krasner, resigns from office. So suddenly you had an open seat district attorney race, which, by the way, is really rare. So the ACLU and other organizations decided to engage in massive voter education in that race. We targeted 11,435 ACLU members who live in Philadelphia. We did more than 26,000 door knocks. Philadelphians elect Larry Krasner as the next district attorney.
0: And that was, from your point of view, a success? Can I assume that Larry Krasner was the candidate that lined up
1: closest with the ACLC? Well, I will say, yes, Larry Krasner is someone who was a civil rights attorney, never been a prosecutor, had sued the police department multiple times for civil rights violations, and he wore it on his sleeve as a point of pride. One of the first things that he does when he takes office is fire 31 prosecutors. Why? Because they didn't share his vision for ending mass incarceration. Then within the first few months of being in office, he issues a five-page memo. And I know a five-page memo doesn't sound exciting, but this was like <laughs> one of the most exciting things I've ever read in my life. The memo was an internal memo that eventually got leaked <laughs> Something out.
0: Something only a lawyer can know, say. sorry. sorry. Um,
1: it got eventually leaked out and it was titled basically, here's how we end mass incarceration right. in the city of Philadelphia. And it did things that were revolutionary. So, for example, we just talked about plea bargains, right? Mm -hmm. He told his line prosecutors, so people who work for him, Mm -hmm. that he wants him to do the opposite. That when you're engaged in negotiations, always go for the least egregious charge. So, for the least severe charge. And he kind of flipped around the whole thing. And he said, that's because our role is actually to have fewer people in prison and to have fewer people in jail. Another thing that he did, which is also revolutionary, he said, whenever my prosecutor tries to get a sentence, you have to say, how much is this going to cost the city of Philadelphia? And why is that cost worth it? Fascinating. in Philadelphia. To hold someone in jail or prison, it's about forty-five thousand to sixty thousand dollars a year. Right. So he said, if you're gonna if you are gonna seek a 10-year sentence, you need to justify why should the taxpayers spend six hundred thousand dollars on this. When that $600,000 can be used to hire more hospital workers or teachers.
0: And I suspect um, that that's pretty revolutionary in the sense it's my understanding that generally prosecutorial offices are not in control of the budgets that pay for the incarceration that their policies right, result in. Right, not at all. Right.
1: That's actually a very good point. Thank you for raising that. Prosecutors, they don't care. They could be spending millions upon millions, and in fact are, of American taxpayer dollars, yet they face no consequences whatsoever. And that is why what Larry Krasner in Philadelphia did is so important. But I also wanna say Larry Krasner is not the only reformed district attorney at this point. Kim Fox in Chicago or Cook County is another kind of revolutionary, amazing district attorney who's changing the system there. One of the things that she did, and she was elected uh, about a year before Larry Krasner was, um, uh, but one of the first things that she did was actually tell her line prosecutors not to pursue felony charges for shoplifting, anything that's less than $1,000. Wow. She also directed her line attorneys when bail option was $1,000 or less, not to pursue cash bail at all. So it just shows, like, the extraordinary power that prosecutors have.
0: Are there any stories that stand out to you about the yeah. dark side of that discretion?
1: Oh, oh wow. There's so many. First of all, of the nearly 2,400 prosecutor offices out there, it is our view that most of them are not doing a good job Okay. in the sense of they act in total secrecy, no accountability, And their goal is just to send more and more people for longer and longer prison sentences. But there are standouts, and we're suing them. Um, So one of them is actually a Democrat. And one of the points I really want to make here and emphasize, Republicans and Democrats are not good on this issue, or historically have not been good on this issue. So there's a district attorney, a Democrat, by the name of Leon Canizzaro who's the district attorney for New Orleans, Orleans Parish, Mm -hmm. which includes the city of New Orleans. And he's one of the worst in the country. And and we sued him last year for his practice of using fake subpoenas. Yes, fake subpoenas, which means that he was sending these really threatening looking pieces of paper to crime witnesses and crime victims and telling them that you need to come to my office and answer a bunch of questions. If you don't, you're going to end up in jail. Um, and this was a totally fabricated or a fake system. The subpoenas were were bogus, and people ended up in jail when they refused. To to be interrogated by his staff.
0: Please tell me that's not legal, Udi.
1: Well, it's not legal, which is why we're <laughs> suing. And our lead plaintiff is a woman by the name of Renata Singleton, who is a domestic violence victim, who got one of these fake subpoenas, and when she refused to testify, she ended up spending five days in jail. Oh my god. It's really, it's 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 crazy. And this is a victim, to be clear, this is a victim of this crime. This is a victim. But he's also known as one of the worst prosecutors of sending people to decades in prison for things like stealing a bicycle if it was their third offense. Louisiana has some of the worst kind of three-strike laws out there.
0: And that just means if you're convicted of a third offense, you right. basically do serious time. Like
1: right? like decades time. Um, and, and the three offenses could be, you know, minor offenses. It didn't matter if it was your third offense. That's how much discretion a district attorney has. And in a lot of these cases, by the way, judges are so uncomfortable with this. And they say on the record that they're uncomfortable with it, but they're hands are tied. Louisiana, until a few months ago, had the highest incarceration rate in the world. Oof. They're very proud of the fact that Oklahoma surpassed them. Um, and now Oklahoma has the highest incarceration rate in the world, and Louisiana has the second highest incarceration rate in the world. But in all seriousness, the reason you know uh, Oklahoma actually out, you know, beat now Louisiana is because Louisiana has started to pass reforms. Um, their governor there is actually someone who's committed to criminal justice reform. He hasn't gone as far as we'd like for him to go, but he's gone pretty far, particularly in a, in a state like Louisiana. And it's been done in a bipartisan manner.
0: You've mostly focused on the local and state prosecutors. Uh, as I mentioned in the intro, we're in a weird period of time where the federal government and Attorney General Jeff Sessions has said unequivocally they're tough on crime. They're going back to the war on drugs. You know, full steam ahead. How does the federal prosecutorial system fit in to everything you're talking about?
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, in two ways. First of all, there are, you know, 200,000 people who on any given day are under federal jurisdiction. Now, when you compare that to the 2.3 million people, it may not feel like a lot, but it is a lot. Secondly, the tone for the nation is set by the federal players. So when you have a president in the United States trying to dehumanize people by just calling them criminals or predators or illegals, it harms our work on the local level. It's like a stamp of approval for this outdated, disproven strategy. Uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions is actually worse than Donald Trump, um, in that he's issued new policies or rolled back past policies that are going to lead to even more people in federal prison. President Obama was the first president to reside over a reduction in the federal prison population. Now, he didn't go as far as we wanted him to go, but he did implement reforms. And one of those reforms was a 2010 memo. I always talk about memos. We lawyers, we (laughs) like memos. You know, he issued a memo in 2010 that was known as a smart on crime memo that essentially told his prosecutors, um, particularly in drug offenses, to not go for the highest charge possible. So a bit similar to what Larry Krasner uh, did in Philadelphia. Okay. And that even encouraged his prosecutors when uh, mandatory minimum laws would get. Triggered because of a certain weight of a drug, to not include the weight of the drug in the charging document so that not to trigger mandatory minimums. And it was really revolutionary. And you saw about a 25% reduction in mandatory minimum charges on the federal level. One of the first things that Attorney General Jeff Sessions did is rescind that memo and said, Nope, I'm going to tell you guys to go after the highest offense possible. And it's part of his, Jeff Sessions, vision of doubling down on the failed war on drugs. Every pieces of data and analysis shows that the war on drugs has failed, yet Jeff Sessions has doubled down on it and it's one of the ways. So the federal government matters in the sense of they set the tone for the country, but the battle to end mass incarceration is going to be won in the states. And that's where we need people in every single state to get involved in the movement. And are you hopeful? When we talk to voters and tell them about this, they are interested. They get engaged and they're like, I had no idea. I'm now going to vote in this race that I normally would not vote in, right? So a lot of times the way this stuff happens is that there's a high profile race, let's say for Senator, for governor or for mayor and voters will vote in that race. But then there's a lot of races under that line and that's where voters usually just like, I have no I've idea who this person I've never heard that person, person I'm gonna skip right.
0: it. So you think necessarily if people pay attention to these races, understand what's at stake and how much discretion prosecutors have, that can only be good for the system going forward? The truth
1: is on our side. And what also makes me hopeful is also despite the fact that Donald Trump and Jeff Sessions are terrible on these issues, this movement in the state is, is still a genuinely bipartisan movement. Um, we are winning in the states and we're winning um, with Republicans and Democrats w- uh, working together together. I mean, there is not a month that goes by where there isn't some victory in the states to begin dismantling um, mass incarceration. And almost in every state, it's being done in a bipartisan way.
0: Fabulous. Uh, Udi, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Do you want to tell people where they can find out more about the campaign for Smart Justice?
1: Yeah, if you just log on to aclu.org uh, backslash smartjustice, it will take you to our page um, about our issue. And go on to votesmartjustice.org to sign up to learn where candidates for office in your jurisdiction stand on criminal justice reform.
0: Excellent. Thanks for listening. I'm Lee Roland, and this has been At Liberty. Be sure to subscribe, and if you can, review the show. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much.